I set that up so that you would feel the force of my presence up here on this pulpit. <laughs> testing one, two. Testing one, two. Is that good? How you doing, Greg? Oh, that's right. You got to mess with that. Will you do that for me? Yeah. Great. Um, I've got one job in the next half hour. That is to love you by taking the last two sentences that Patty just read to you. The two verses, we'll see them up on the screen in a minute and help you understand them and then ask you if you believe them and call you to that and then challenge you to think about going out there and living those together. All right? Thanks, brother. That one right there. Okay. So let me start off with a story to set the, set the stage for you and then we'll get into the words together. A few years ago, uh, Grace and I were going to the annual Lead Pastors and Wives June retreat that the church planting network that we're a part of does. This one was scheduled in Sonoma Valley, California, Northern California, above San Fran. We had never been there, and so we not only planned to spend the time enjoying the time with the brothers and the sisters, but we also said we're going to spend a whole day just seeing the Sonoma Valley sites. So we did three things. One, we went to one of those wine-making factories. What do they call them? Not factory. A winery. We went to a winery. That was cool. We drove straight up the coast, and those mountains plunged down into the Pacific, and the Pacific rolls out before you, and we saw some beautiful sights. And then we went to one of those California redwood forests. Do you know about these? This was one of those moments where Psalm 19 just literally jumps off the pages of Scripture at you. You go, yes, creation declares the glory of God and proclaims his majesty. Standing in this giant forest with hundreds of these trees, some which were thousands of years old, all of them, 30 of us could not wrap our arms around and Wicked tall does not begin to express to you the height of these trees. It was breathtaking. And I remember thinking, how did this happen? How did all of these trees stand for so long that they might grow so magnificent and massive and tall? All the floods, all the winds, all the hurricanes, all the termites, all the droughts, all the wildfires in California, and here they are still standing. And I thought to myself, these trees must have the longest roots. I mean, they must tap China, India, or like they are in the lava down in the middle of the earth. That's how far down they got. And there must be just an unbelievable number of roots for these trees to be still standing. Then I went home and I read about it and I was wrong. I was wrong. Redwood trees do not have more roots than the average tree, nor do they have longer roots than the average tree. You know what it is? Their roots are intertwined and interwoven together with each other. If you got a shovel and you dug below a redwood tree, you would not be able to untangle its roots from the next tree's roots. You wouldn't know where their roots start and those roots end and who else's roots are interlocked down here together. Year after year, 
those roots have grown closer, tighter, firmer, and that is the reason that above ground these trees stand for centuries. You feel that? That is exactly what we are going to see in the words of our text today, exactly. It's exactly what Jesus intends to be true for you and for me and for our life together as Seven Mile Road Church. A year from now, five years from now, 25 years from now, if some of us make it 50 years from now, we would still be standing in the gospel despite all the opposition that's coming and all the temptation inside of us to just bail on Jesus and each other. And one of his primary means of getting you there, of getting me there, is giving us each other to lock gospel roots with. All right, let's pray and go see that together. Father, be gracious to us. Teach us to love your words, to understand them. Help us to not be distracted right now, to be active listeners. And give me some grace to not make a mess of this, but to be clear for my brothers and my sisters, I pray. In faith. Amen. All right. Help me out with this. Tell me some activities in life that it is not good for you to do a lot of. What are some activities in life that it is not good for you to do a lot of? Go. Eating McDonald's? Great answer. If it's a road trip and you got nothing else to do and you got to hit the McDonald's drive-thru, do it with no guilt. But you don't want to be there every afternoon. Watching the news, right? Depending on the temperament of your spirit and the channel you're talking about, too much of that is maybe not a good thing. Who said tanning? Yes, I'm giving you a hug after because that's on my list. Tanning booth. I've been in a tanning booth one time. Three days before my wedding, I was like, I got to get some of this Glenn Cruz whiteness off this skin because there's going to be pictures. You don't want to be in a tanning booth more than super special occasions. Okay. I also had five-hour energy drinks. You don't want to become dependent upon those, but if you got to stay up one time, go for it. Video games, fine. Enjoy them, but that is, if that is like 16 hours a day, you know, some of those gamers that's seven days a week, that's too much. And then right here, Katie, it says tanning booth. I'm serious. I'm with you. All right, give me some activities that it's really good to do a lot of. It's great to do a lot of. Blogging? Walking. Every day, exercise, walking is good. There's not too much of that. I mean, at an extreme level. But yeah, walking is a great thing to do a lot of. Should be a mark of your life. Reading is fantastic, cannot possibly encourage you more to stimulate your mind and to broaden your horizons and to love words, which sets a heart in your uh, fire in your soul for the love of the words of Scripture. Reading is good. Smiling. All right, they did a study on that or something, right? You should smile a lot. We have any brooding people that would disagree with that? Smiling. I had playing pickup, which goes along with walking, staying in shape, making friends. 
making love to your husband or your wife. That's a grace from God. If you're married, that should be frequent and fun and a lot. Memorizing scripture. All right, here's another one. Here we go. It is a good thing for Christians to get together a lot. It is a good thing for Christians to be together a lot. If you read through your Bible from beginning to end, one of the things you would notice is this. Jesus' people get together a lot. This was true in the older covenant. God commanded it. He not only set them to live in close proximity together, allocating each of the tribes of Israel a specific plot of land, but regularly commanded them to come and be together around feasts and festivals. Once a month, there was a new moon feast to celebrate another month together. Seven times a year, there was different big festivals and feasts, sort of like we have Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day, Christmas. Seven times, they would come together. Every seventh year was the Sabbath year feast. And then the big one, the one when they had to call in uh, Mass Rhythms Entertainment, was the Jubilee. Every 50 years, they got together for a while. Do you feel this? Lots of gathering with God's people, lots of being together. That rhythm flowed right into the life of the New Testament church, defined their life together. I've been reading devotionally through the book of Acts, and one of the themes that jumps out at you is this togetherness. Acts chapter 2 starts with these words. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. And then at the end of the birth of the church, it says, day by day, they were together in the temple and breaking bread in their homes. The apostles got arrested, put in prison for the night. When they got set free, where did they go right away? I love this. The beginning of chapter four says, when they were released, they went to their friends. You feel that? Just immediately said, I got to go be with Jesus' people. Chapter 5 says they were all together in Solomon's portico. That was a special section of the temple where they could gather to worship Jesus together. And of course, Acts 20, Paul says he did not cease day and night for three years to be with them in public and from house to house. You feel that? The first Christians were together a lot. Uncle Ray Ortland sums it up beautifully like this. Hear these words. What we see in the Bible is people who can't stay away from each other. When the Holy Spirit came down, the revived church started getting together a lot. They met and they met and they met and they loved it. They met all together in the temple for worship and they also met in small groups in their homes. The power of the Holy Spirit did not create a spiritual elite standing aloof. The power of the Holy Spirit created a community drawing more and more people into it. Yes. All right, now our question today is why? Why the deep relationships and the high frequency of being together? Was it just affinity? Did they just like each other and get along? Anybody in here into antique cars, like that's your thing? 
Just one of us? If there was anybody else here who was into antique cars, you would be getting together with my dad all the time. Do you know what these kind of people do? They actually have these car shows all summer long, every Tuesday or Thursday. They all drive their antique cars to Fuddruckers, and they just park them in the parking lot there. And for three, four hours, they just walk around and look at each other's cars. And they say the same thing week after week after week. They get together a lot out of what? Affinity. Is that all that this is? Religious affinity. Did they just have nothing better to do? Sometimes I swear we think that's the case, right? If they just had flat screen TVs, Netflix, PlayStation, and Fortnite, nobody would have been hanging out in the early church. Did they just have no choice but to be together? Or was it just duty? How many people have a job where professional development is required of you? And you have to go do that regularly. So in, in my world of my day job, I have to do that. And it's the same 30, um, 40, 60 people that attend those month after, quarter after year. We get together a lot because we have to. Is that what was going on in this story? Or is it something much deeper? It's something much deeper. These Christians, all Christians knew, if we're going to make it, if we're going to stand in the gospel long term, they needed one another. That is exactly what we see in our text. Okay, remember the context. These two verses today are out of the bigger book of Hebrews. It's a letter slash sermon written to a young church who was in danger of falling away from Jesus and his gospel. Hard times were pressing on to them, and they began to moonwalk like this away from identifying with Jesus. Hey, they used to be Jews. Can't we just go back to just being Moses' people? Do we really need to add on this Jesus because our culture is hostile to the Jesus gospel? Can we kind of fade from this? The whole letter is written to help them not fade, to stand firm. He does it by pressing huge gospel glories, the the unrivaled awesomeness of Jesus, and he does it by giving them sober warnings and reminding them, you can't just eject from Jesus if you've tasted of his grace. In our two verses today, he is inviting them to stand firm. All right, let's work them together. That's the big idea. Here's the first part. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We want you to love the words of Scripture, to think on each of them and how they go together, so let's do that. First, he says, let us, let us. I love that. In other words, you guys, I know how hard it is to stand long-term in the gospel and with Jesus. I am weak like you. I don't feel like it at times. I get scared what's going to happen at times if people know I'm a Christian. I often think if I just kind of distanced myself from the whole Jesus thing, my life would go much easier, much easier. I get the whole pull away from the church thing. I am as susceptible to it as you. I love the humility that he's saying. We all need to hear this word, let us. And then he says, let us consider 
how to stir up one another. Consider is a thinking word. It's a contemplation. It's working it through up in here. It's giving some time to it. And then stir up is a big time coach word. It's a driving word. It's an action and moving word. Uh, Another translation here is to spur on. We got one antique car person. Do we have any horse people in the room? Anybody ever ridden a horse? I love preaching in Massachusetts. It's like, never shot a gun, never rode a horse. (laughs) Then I go to Texas and they're like, you never shot a gun? You never rode a horse? They tell me that when you ride a horse, you put spurs on your boots and you drive those things into the back end of that horse for what purpose? To spur that horse on to not fade, to keep pressing forward. Hey man, you can do this. We can win this race. Straight ahead, as fast as you go. Let's keep going. There is energy and a sharpness to that word. Let's go. Okay, so feel this one-two punch. We are called to think about it and then to do it. So it was actually uh, Jacob and Nick who got these screens up the other day. And it was like 45 minutes of considering. They looked at the wall. They looked at the problem with the space between the two poles. They knocked on the wood. They talked about it. They chatted it up. They were making a plan. And then they went for it and got out the screw guns and the nails and ran to Home Depot, and they did something about it. Do you feel that one-two punch? Think about it, and then get after it, both together. All right, now the only way for these words up here to ever actually happen, the only way for them to ever actually happen, what needs to be true? If you're going to do this, you need to know each other. There is no way for you to be able to do this in the life of a church or a community if we don't know each other really well. All right, some personal examples so that you can feel this. So I'm a dad right now to four children and three awesome teenagers. And I have not been invited to any father of the year ceremonies recently. Uh, Not awesome at this. My intentions are good. My execution is sketchy. Does that make sense? All right. There are multiple people in the life of our church who know me and who love me. And so they are on me, spurring me on, stirring me up to ways that love and good works would define my fatherhood with my kids. So it's questions like this. Have you loved your sons? Have you affirmed them in anything Or have you just been critical? Is it just hammering on them? Or is there anything in there where you affirm them? That's a spurring question. Or your daughters, how about those girls? Are you holding them? Are you lounging with them? Are you hanging out with them? Or are you just lecturing them? It's another question that I'm asked by some brothers who love me. Now, how are they able to spur me on like that? They get together with me a lot, and they know me. They know my tendency to be Bostonian overly critical, right? I don't know if you're wired that way, but I am one of those people who if there was 10 things to do and nine of them went awesome and one of them was eh, what's the only thing that I think about? It's the one thing that was eh 
And I'm like, why didn't we nail all 10 of them? What's wrong with us? That does not work in loving anybody and teenagers especially. Uh, they also know that I'm a prophet, right? Preacher. And my mouth often works like this. Ready, fire. Aim. And so they know to say to me, hey, um, have you been listening? Have you been allowing space for others to be in the conversation in your home? And they're spurring me on to there. That never happens if they don't know me and know what I'm like. Same thing with our marriage. So I turn 45 in a few days. That is like a bullseye for the uh, midlife crisis and all of the sin and the discontent and the stupidity that can come into a man's life in that season. And there are people in this church who know how old I am, even know my birthday. They know how long we've been married because they've been around us. They know the ups and the downs and the sharp edges of our marriage. They know. And they have been super helpful to spur me on to faithfulness and joy and the good fight, the good fight for the health of our marriage. That never happens if they don't know how old I am or what my marriage is like or what my sin is like. Do you feel that? In other words, for you to obey this command of Scripture, you have to commit, have to, to more than just a casual, surface level, I'll see you a couple of times a year maybe, relationship. And so it is no surprise that these are the next words that we read. We'll go this way this time. Here we go. Let us consider, oh no, you can go back one. Okay, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then we get this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So I read that and I went, no duh. I actually read the sentence in a commentary. Community encouragement and love and good works can scarcely occur if believers cease to meet with one another. I read that and I was like, you got paid to write that sentence? Why am I not writing commentaries? Of course, if we desperately need each other and if helping each other requires knowing each other and if that only happens through FaceTime with each other, then neglecting to get together with Jesus' people, withdrawing your presence from the life of the church, rhythms of worship, gospel community, it doesn't make sense. That's a problem. And it's not a new problem. We see it right here in this text from 2,000 years ago. Some folks who are a part of this church in a pronounced way made a habit of not getting together anymore. This is a really strong word here, neglect. It has the idea of just a total abandonment, a straight-up eject button, I'm out. It has the tone of leaving someone in the lurch to their harm. So we've helped a lot of people move in the life of this church, and I, I forget which one it was, but I think it was helping Brent move up three flights of stairs and uh, I made that awful mistake of being the couch guy, but not just the couch guy, the couch guy at the bottom end of the couch. I don't know how that happened. Don't ever do that. If you want to be tough guy, tough girl, and do the couch, make sure that you're one at the top end of the couch going up the stairs. So I got the bottom end of the couch. We're doing all right. 
I think it was Brent, he goes, hey, I'm just going to lean this on the wall. I got to go open the door and, and create the space. Like seven minutes later, I am still standing underneath this couch. My kid, where are you? Just gone, abandoned me. And it was just not possible for me to continue to stand if I didn't have somebody with me giving me some help. That's the idea here. You are abandoning the community, the brothers, the sisters. And this happens all the time, all the time in the life of a church. There is this pull in us away from community. We've experienced that here, right? People are locked in with us for a season. Their roots in the gospel and ours are beginning to intersect. And then all of a sudden, you guys will say to me, hey, what happened to so-and-so? Where did they go? Why does that happen? If we take some time to run through that long list, right? So one thing is I... I don't want to be near the Jesus people anymore because there may be some cultural pushback on me. The other night I went to Harvard to a pro-life presentation that was happening. It was interesting. It was in the philosophy department and the stairs were here and the pro-life speaker was here and there was this long hallway in between and the pro-choice, the rabid pro-choice folks had gotten there to protest and they had all their signs up on the wall and they were watching you walk through. And I got to the top of the stairs and I was like, ooh, if I'm going to identify with those who value life, I'm going to have to actually show my face and walk straight down this hallway. In this Hebrew church, that was becoming a difficult thing to do, to say, I will continue to associate with the Christians in this empire where that is not very popular anymore. I think I might make a habit of neglecting to show up. That's real. Get ready because that will very likely be true in your lifetime. It will not just be a neutral thing for you to come say, I'm with Jesus and his people. I'm crazy busy is the one that I get the most, right? I'm wicked busy. I just got so much going on. I just can't get time for Jesus's people. I don't feel like it. We can be honest and say we've all been there before, right? That was like defined my senior year in college. I just did not feel like getting together with Jesus' people. I'm living in sin. I really don't want to quit, but I really don't want to go show up and hear about how that's not okay. I was hurt. That's legit. If you've been hurt by the church, let's heal here with you. I'm in conflict with somebody, and I really don't feel like seeing them right now. My life is a wreck. Whatever the reason is for neglecting and abandoning me, I want you to notice something about everything that I just listed with you. All those excuses revolved around who? I. Did you hear it? Did you hear the way that I was phrasing it? The self. Who was it that never came into the calculus of the decision whether or not to get together with Jesus' people in those sentences with those excuses? Who never came up? the other person. And that's why these next words of Scripture are so helpful, and they may stop you in your tracks. They're supposed to. They are meant to confront your self-centeredness, the way you think about getting together. Here's what it said. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Man, I love this. Do you feel here that the contrast that the Spirit makes is not just between not showing up and showing up. 
What's the contrast? It's between not showing up and encouraging the other. In other words, when you stop getting together with Jesus' people, you're not just hurting you. You are hurting them. Or to say that more positively, your presence interlocking in the gospel with Jesus' people is not just about you getting, it's about you giving. You're not just here to get some courage for the weak. You are here to give some courage to the others. Making that mental shift right there will change completely how you think about getting together a lot with Jesus' people. What's a good getting together in the life of Seven Mile Road look like for you? What's on that list? If it's a Sunday, is it, it was a good sermon that I understood and it helped me. Josh and Felipe sang the songs I like. Oh man, it was a good week. I'm glad I went. Heather put some new drinks in the fridge outside and she didn't see it. I opened the door and I took one and it was a really good Sunday. Do you ever say to yourself, I can't wait to, and I got to get to church today because there may be somebody there who needs to get some courage from me. There may be somebody new this week who I have a connection with, an experience that I share, and my presence there is going to give some courage and help lead them to Jesus. Somebody might be going through something that I have gone through before, and I may get to be a voice to help them stand because we got together. I totally have to deal with this, too. This is a total let us sermon from me to you. Why do I show up on Sundays? Now, it's totally weird, right, because I'm a pastor. We're, like, still trying to figure this out in our family. What, how do you do that? Dad's a pastor? That is so weird. In a sense, I have to be here on Sunday, right? You get to not be here, but I got to be here. But why? Why do I get here? Is it to self-actualize and feel good about like this performance that I get to do in the middle of the sermon? Is it to see what's happening in the life of the church so that I can do that work? Or is it to see who I can give courage to in the gospel today? In this role, but before and after as well. Who can I get to know and to love? The heart of this command to not neglect getting together a lot with Jesus' people is not, hey, you're a Christian, so you need to show up at church, in gospel community, at the retreat, whatever. Uh Uh-uh. The heart of this command is, hey, you're a Christian, And Jesus has made you a means of grace to encourage one another. And they the same for you. And that is why you have to get together a lot. I love how he says it. He finishes with this thought. Sorry. All the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more in here is, is just, in Bostonian, we, we would just say a lot. All the more. In other words, when you realize that getting together with Jesus' people is super vital, super vital for your soul thriving and theirs, 
you won't be thinking, how little can I be with these people? But, hey, all the more. All the more. All right, let's land the plane. Where are you at with all of this? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, and I love you for it. But believe with me. Check your heart with me. Where are you at with all of this? Nobody is saying that you've got to spend every waking, not working moment of your life with church people. It's not what I'm saying. Here's the question I want you to ask. Is your life built to get good gospel time with Jesus' people? Is your life built to get good gospel time with Jesus' people? Uh, I use Google Calendar, right? I'm trying to get Grace to sync up with me. We're working on it. We're like... In between, right? We got Google Calendar and then we got that thing on the fridge that you're going to write on. My Google Calendar, you know, you can pick a color. It's bright red. And you can pick a name. Did you know that? I'll show you later. You can give it your own name. If you looked at my Google Calendar, here's what it's named Good Gospel Busy. Good Gospel Busy. In other words, I want to go to my crazy busy schedule and I want to make sure. That the gospel is speaking into the rhythms of my life. And there should be a bunch of times on there where I am getting together with Jesus' people. And then you can walk through my week with me and see the conversations that I had just this past week with probably 15 different people I'm looking at this week because I am committed to them standing in the gospel. Do you live this way? Do you get excited about Sunday even if you don't feel like it? because you know the next person needs you. When you get that group text of gospel community coming up and trying to figure out when to meet, are you like, ah? Or do you go, hey, let me, let me find a way to be there, because they need me, and I need them. Here's one way to state my dream for the church. Here it is, to wrap this frame together. That in five years, or 10 years, or like 20 years from now, tend to still be here. You and I would still be standing super tall in the gospel. And if someone says to us, how did that happen? How'd you guys not get knocked over and fall away from Christ? I want to give them a shovel. That's what I want to do. And I want to say, hey, dig. Go ahead. Break the beautiful hardwood floor and dig into the soul of Seven Mile Road Church. And when you get down there, what you're going to see is our lives are so intertwined and interlocked that you won't even be able to tell where does Cruz's life begin and Jeremy's life end and Fran's life begin and Jim's life end and Katie's life begin and Patty's life end. It's like this down there because they gave themselves to each other. And when I look above the surface, I see this beautiful, unique life live to the glory of God, strong and tall. But when I get underneath, I see a people who are devoted to each other. If you've not begun to live life like that with us, it's just a massive joy, and it's a calling of the Spirit, and I, I invite you to that with us. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for these words of Scripture. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more. Help us to believe these words to be true. Help us to live them together. Give us the grace that we might stand super tall in the gospel because you have bound our souls and our lives together. Hear my prayer for that, I pray and answer. Amen. All right, thanks for listening through to that. Be thinking about those words of scripture. That's Hebrews chapter 10. You can go swim in that for your own this week. Here at the height of our service, we come to the means of grace that we call Jesus' table. As surely as we are about to eat some bread and drink some cup, that's how surely we know. We belong to Jesus. Jesus. 